Today's reading is from uh, the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to go from verses 1 to 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is God's word. My name's David. I am from Sydney, Australia originally. I was brought up there and then moved over here to study theology at the University of Oxford. And now I work in Oxford, live there, and absolutely love it. It's great. And, you know, I had many, many boyfriends when I was growing up. My search for relationships was really extensive. You know, I started going out to Oxford Street in Sydney, which is the central kind of strip of, of the gay world in, in Sydney, trying to kind of go to clubs and meet people. I think love was a rush. Love was like an intoxication with the other person. And it it was a kind of escapism, really, from the context that I was in because I didn't feel accepted, I didn't feel understood. I would primarily define love, now that I'm a Christian, as self-sacrificial love, the kind of love we see on the cross. And that love is a passionate and romantic love, but it's ultimately first about giving yourself to the other and giving yourself up for the other. And that actually in that you find the most brilliant intimacy there is. The moment I became a Christian was incredible. I first experienced Jesus when I was in a pub in central Sydney in the gay quarter when a girl prayed for me uh, and I just felt this most incredible presence come upon me. It was like tingling like oil on my head and it, it was just this love that I had never encountered before and I was completely gobsmacked, completely dumbfounded that this was real. It wasn't just a concept. The intimacy I experience with God now, it's like any relationship. There's maintenance, there's things that need to happen. But I think the difference with the relationship with God is that he is always faithful. And I can actually depend on him. And I think that's an incredible security that I have with him that I just wouldn't want to give up for anything. And so I think you can't find that in any other relationship. It's only in that relationship with God that I, I have that. And that, that really helps me to love others better, love others in a deeper way. Of course, I miss romantic relationships. And on some level, I miss sex, yes. But in another sense, not at all. Because actually, the search deep down 
behind sex in our society is a search for intimacy. And when I was having those sexual relationships, I was not finding very profound forms of intimacy. In fact, often that would separate me or distance me from people. So I think I found the intimacy I was looking for in Christ and in, in the church. What I love about being a Christian is that I get to share the most incredible news with people that they don't have to live up to a moral standard, that they don't have to climb this ladder. And I think a lot of people feel condemned and actually I get to share the news with them that they're not condemned when they receive Jesus and they turn away from sin or their old life. They, they're completely accepted, completely loved, completely brought into God's family and that there's no condemnation anymore. I love that. <laughs> Evening, evening, everyone. Let me add my welcome. Uh, my name is indeed Matt. Uh, uh, that video was from the, um, the, the Living Out website. Let me commend that to you. Um, there's a whole bunch of resources uh, of uh, multiple videos and uh, podcasts and uh, written stuff and research papers, um, primarily for, for, well, I think it's for everyone to look at. I mean, the, the issue on the, of, the sub, of the website is same-sex attraction, but I, I'd say even if that doesn't cross your radar personally, read it, go there, understand a little bit more, uh, profoundly uh, helpful. Um, David is sort of Mr. Cheerful, he's sort of unfailingly cheerful. Others uh, a bit more, yeah, sometimes it's hard, uh, but this is great and on balance. So this is, there's a variety. Uh, so you get some sort of tiggers like him, some a bit more Eeyore-ish, uh, but it's a really, really helpful uh, place to go and look. So we continue then our little uh, series this month then, not uh, working our way through a book of the Bible, but uh, thinking topically about um, issues of sexuality and uh, identity uh, from a biblical basis. So um, each week, turn into a passage, pulling out one or two of the major truths of the passage uh, and applying them uh, to what's going on in our world today. So a little bit different this month. Uh, tonight, we're really thinking what the purpose of marriage is. So uh, let me pray. I'm going to do this together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you're good. You are a good, good Father uh, to us. And you tell us things that we need to hear, not always what we want to hear, but what we need to hear and what is for our good. Uh, Fathers, we come this evening then to once again touch upon issues which uh, run very deep within every single one of us and are close to uh, who we think we are. But Father, help us to listen to the scriptures and once again allow them to shape us rather than uh, treat them as something that we manipulate. Uh, Father, help me to speak with care. Help all of us to listen with integrity. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, yes, what is marriage for, really, we're thinking tonight, and, and as part of that, what is sex for? What is our sexuality for? So, really, I guess it's, it's sex within marriage we're thinking about. Let me just suggest as we begin, um, if you went to someone in the street, what do you think the purpose of sex is? I think it's broadly one of three answers. The last is the biblical one, the smallest probably. 
but probably one of three answers by the time you got beyond the flippant uh, and the banal and the trivial and the why do you want some uh, sort of um, you know you, 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 that would probably be the majority because people would just feel awkward but when you get beyond that um, uh, the three I think first would be the pragmatic view sex is fun it's just for fun it's just for entertainment okay that would probably be the first view sex is for entertainment and as long as there's consent go for it that I think would be quite a large chunk of the responses probably the dominant idea for about 50 years from 1960 when uh, the contraceptive pill becomes widely available 1961 on the NHS uh, probably what you'd say for about 50 years I think that would be the dominant position sex is fun and if there's consent you go for it and have a hoot um, and don't worry what anyone else thinks I think that's become a little different in the last few years so movements such as Me Too, more recently Everyone's Invited, there's more of a caution now. More of a, oh, hold on a minute, uh, assumed consent, maybe that's not right. Um, oh. So I just happened to come across uh, university figures, I don't know what we make of these, but um, the most recent survey of university students, uh, higher, education, higher education policy institutes, that during their three or four years at university, 66% of male students didn't have sex. 53% of female students didn't have sex. So the idea that everyone, everyone um, is just going for it. Yeah, yeah, you just have the time of your life sexually and, and free for all. That's not the case. Those figures would have been very different, I think, 20 years ago. But that would be the first, the pragmatic view. Sex is just for fun. Second, I think, would be the idea of sex as a declaration of who I am. Sex as a badge of identity. So probably closely linked over the last 30 years to a gay movement, um, groups such as Stonewall, etc. But sexuality, uh, such a dominant marker of who we are, Probably this is how we define ourselves first and foremost. I am gay. Therefore, I must be allowed to express that. And if you think that's wrong, you're a morally contemptible person. So there's quite a shift, I think, over time. Third would be the biblical picture. The idea that sex is a powerful, yeah, I don't know why that's, it's, it's not planned, don't worry. Uh, it doesn't say at this point, let's go for mood lighting. Um, <laughs> the third then would be uh, the biblical view that, our, that sex is a powerful metaphor. It's given to us by God to help us understand his love for us. It's quite important to discern the difference between those three. They're three wildly different uh, perspectives. And if you come across someone and they're coming from a different angle, you're just going to not understand one another at all unless you get those different starting points. So for some here who are Christians, uh, some would live in fear, I think, of being asked, what do you think about sex? Oh, no. Uh, my colleague, my friend has, has, has said that out loud. And again, I think the difference would be different is that 
people, if they're coming from a pragmatic position and ask us that, uh, which certainly would have been dominant when I was in my 20s, I think they would have just thought, oh, you, you think sex is just within marriage and it's a picture of God and that you, oh, you're missing out. Oh, you are silly and you're missing out. You, you saddo. That would have been the perspective, I think. But if you think that having sex is just a, a declaration of who you are, your identity, well, that's more significant, isn't it? Because to deny that, well, then you are morally reprehensible. It's almost acceptance of gay marriage. It's, also, it's almost a mark of moral competence in the 21st century. You don't think that's right? Oh, my word. You're a weirdo. In fact, you're worse than that. You're just unpleasant. So what do you do as a Christian, if you're a Christian here tonight? Well, I think helping people understand those differences is of some use. Fundamentally, if you're a Christian, you want to speak to people about Jesus. No one is converted from promiscuity or homosexuality. People are converted out of unbelief in Jesus, to belief in Jesus. So you want to speak about Jesus. But of course, there are times when people just, okay, now it's enough about that. What do you think about this issue? So I know it shouldn't be a silly voice. Uh, enough of all that. What do you think about sex? And that's what I want to talk to you about. And I think that you've got to go back and say, well, can we just talk, what do you think the purpose is? Because until we've established that, I just think I may as well be speaking Russian to you. We just won't understand one another. And once you've explained that and put that, that, put that on the table, they may say, oh, okay, I get where you're coming from, and I still think you're despicable. Or I get where you're coming from, and uh, golly, I just haven't even thought of it in those terms, of course. But it is worth clarifying that, because otherwise, inevitably, you're just going to, you're not on the same page in any sense at all. Considerable overlap, I think, between those views and those of marriage. Uh, sex is just for fun, the pragmatic view. Therefore, marriage is to make me happy. Or secondly, uh, sex is a sort of expression of my identity. Therefore, I must be allowed to have same-sex marriage. Uh, that's a fundamental right, a demonstration of who I am. Or thirdly, you know, no, sex is a picture of God and his love for the church in Christ. What is the purpose of marriage? It is to reveal Christ's love for his church. That's what we're looking at tonight. Second in the block of four then, uh, last week we began thinking um, uh, about identity primarily and, and uh, saying, look, you don't find your identity by looking within. You, you find it by looking to who God is, who he says we are, what he has done for you, what he's doing in your life. That's what you must allow to define you. You don't come to the scriptures and say, well, here's my experience and I'll sort of delete anything in the Bible which doesn't sort of fit. No, we, we come and allow the scriptures to interpret what's going on in our lives. That was last week. Uh, tonight, then, we're thinking about marriage. What is the purpose of marriage? It is to display Christ's love for his church, primarily. We're looking at it like this uh, in Matthew 19. We'll look at the essence of marriage, the dignity of marriage, and then the dignity of the single life. 
Okay? The essence of marriage, the dignity of marriage, and then the dignity of the single life. Okay, we'll just run through those three. We might even get some power back. Who knows? First, the essence of marriage is a union of a male and a female. Let's pick it up, uh, verse 3. The Pharisees, Pharisees come to test Jesus. They're trying to trap him. Okay, it's a bit of entrapment going on. Let's bring out the most complicated Old Testament question we can get and, and see if we can get him to uh, look like a wally. So, they asked, is it lawful for a man to, dis- to, excuse me, for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus replied, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female? Okay, you want to talk about marriage? Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. God made them male and female. And we haven't go and read it afterwards. But if you go through the flow of Genesis 1, all the way through, it's complementary pairs. So uh, I don't know if it will come up on a slide. I don't know if we've got a slide or a computer or anything at the moment. Uh, but what do you get? You work through Genesis 1. God makes the heaven and the earth. He makes light and darkness. He makes day, he makes night, he makes sea, he makes dry land. At the climax of the story, he makes male and he makes female. All the way through the chapter, you get these complementary pairs. Without day, you don't get night. Without land, you don't get sea. Without male, you don't get female. You need them, these complementary pairs to come together. It's as if in Genesis chapter 1, you get the heavens and the earth come together in creation. And then in chapter 2 of Genesis, the man and the woman come together in the first marriage. Throughout the Old Testament, God uses the language of marriage and sex to describe his love for his people. God is the faithful husband. Israel is the unfaithful wife. And you can't swap them round. God's people are not divine, eternal, um, unfailingly gracious. He is. You can't swap God and the people. You can't swap male and female. You can't do that, the biblical thinking. They're not interchangeable. And then in verse 5, Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis 1 in verse 4, Genesis 2 verse 5. He said this, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Tangentially, the male and the female, they leave families, they become one flesh. The marriage relationship is more fundamental biblically than that you have with your parents than that you have with your children. They're not described in this term. Because this one flesh union, male and female, is designed to display God and his people. That emphasis occurs even more clearly throughout the uh, the New Testament. Let me remind you, uh, for most of you, of some familiar passages. So Ephesians chapter 5. Now, Ephesians chapter 5 uh, and verse 31, 
Paul, the Apostle Paul, quotes the same passage from Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man will be, excuse me, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Well, there we go, magic. Christ and the church. Marriage and husbands do this in marriage, and here are your responsibilities, and wives, Ephesians 5, here are your responsibilities. What I'm talking about really is Christ and the church. This married, this male and this female, whoever it may be, this Jesse and this Katie, whoever it may be, these, these it's a picture of Christ and his church. And then we had uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the end of Revelation, over a number of weeks, uh, that Scott took us through. Revelation 19. Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, obviously it's the summer in heaven, bright and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Revelation chapter 21, it's the same picture of the Christ is the groom, his people are the bride. From Genesis chapter 1 through to Revelation chapter 21, consistently throughout the scriptures, one man, one woman come together in marriage to demonstrate God's love for his people, Christ's love for his church. So the story of marriage is intimately connected with the gospel. If you distort marriage, male and female, you're distorting with Christ's redeeming. You've got no gospel. It just falls apart biblically. It's gone because humans don't save Christ and Christ doesn't save Christ and humans don't save humans. Christ redeems his church. And a picture of that is a husband and a wife in one flesh union. You muck about with that, you have no gospel, you have no salvation, it's gone. So it's the really silly comments you sometimes get. Oh, churches such as Christchurch Mayfair, evangelical churches, they just obsess over one or two bits of the Bible. Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6. Boo. They just go on and on about those negative passages. Can't from Genesis 1 to revelate from the beginning to the end of the Bible, it's just the same picture over and over again. You can't distort the union of one man and one woman in marriage without abandoning the saving message of Jesus. You just can't. It doesn't you got a lot of scissor and stick you got a lot of scissor work to do on your Bible. There's not a lot left if you do that. The essence of marriage is a union of male and female. Secondly, then, let's think about the dignity, the dignity of marriage. The dignity of marriage, verses 7 to 9, that should be honoured. The dignity of marriage should be honoured. So the Pharisees think they've got Jesus. Ah, uh, look, uh, verse 7, why then? Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, well, he didn't. Jesus, excuse me, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. He never commanded it. 
Moses permitted you, you can read about it, Deuteronomy 24, to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Unfaithfulness breaks the one flesh union physically, graphically. It breaks that one flesh union. And in that circumstance, says Jesus, that's so such an attack upon the marriage, divorce is possible. Elsewhere, Paul, the possible 1 Corinthians 7, we'll give, explain that a little bit further, give a few more details. But notice Jesus says, it was permitted because your hearts were hard. Presumably, there was just no willingness to repent, no willingness to forgive. But that was never, he says, the Creator's original design. That's not that way from the beginning. His design, God's design, is one flesh forever. So divorce is never morally neutral, by which I mean, you know, uh, a bus went past the other day and there was an advertisement for a divorce party. And you think, oh, they think that's good business at the end of a year of lockdown, of intensity. You don't celebrate divorce. Sometimes, says Jesus, it's necessary. Sometimes it is best. You get someone out of an abusive marriage. Sometimes, sadly, you have to do that. In the case here, on occasion. But it's never God's plan A. And it's always a cause of sadness. Sometimes. There's a hardness of heart. And the marriage just can't carry on. There's infidelity. And it's just not repented of. But it is sadness. So look, broad brush, and this is lazy, of course, broad brush. Uh, the world will say to you, broad brush, um, shop around relationally uh, and, you know, try out various different models of men and, 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 and women. Um, but shop around relationally until you find your perfect partner and then marry. Oh, and if they turn out to be not the perfect one after all, which they probably won't because no one's perfect, um, we'll jettison them and get another. Okay. So I read that the, um, uh, in the UK, the average age of marriage climbs a little bit every year. So the average age for a man to marry is 38, for a woman to marry is 35. And now just a smidgen over 50% of the UK population over the age of 16 are married. Uh, and they reckon within five years that'll be less than 50%. Um, we'll dip below that. So I think within five years, probably the majority of the UK population not married because, well, you shop around, you shop around. But the biblical picture, you choose sensibly and you commit. Because marriage is a pointer to the biblical picture of Christ's love for his church. And Jesus will never abandon his church. Jesus will never abandon his church. And therefore, in marriage, which is the picture, you don't abandon your spouse, apart from unusual circumstances where sometimes it's necessary. That's why many here would have stood at the front of this church or others and said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, till death us do part, according to God's holy law, in the presence of God, I take this vow. 
I'm stood here, Lord, and I'm saying I'm here for good. I'm in this marriage for the rest of my life. Big words, better, worse, richer, poorer, sickness, health. Big words. And look, at times it's hard. Don't worry, I, I, my experience is the first 20 years, it gets much easier after 20 years of marriage, all right? It just gets easier after 20 years. Uh, you learn to live with one another a bit better than But the, you know, every marriage has seasons which are hard. Every marriage, or most marriages have seasons where it's great, uh, and there's delight, and it's fun, and there's intimacy, and you know, people say marriage is hard. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Time. Uh, and every marriage goes through seasons, and at times it's hard, and sometimes it's external circumstances and the pressures you put upon, excuse me, put upon you. Other times it's just your internal sin and that of your spouse. After twenty odd years of marriage, I think if we had one, a theme tune for us would be: through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. It's grace that's kept us safe thus far, and grace will keep us married, because every marriage needs grace. Just about the most useful things, important things you say in a marriage are, I am sorry, truly, and I forgive you. Let's move on. And so for those of us who are married, we just need to keep working at that. Because none of us want a marriage. Well, you know, you're dull, aren't you? But I'm just stuck with you because I promised to. Uh, how long have we got? 15 more years. Oh, my word. No one wants that marriage. Don't settle for that marriage. But sometimes people think, well, I've got a choice. I either get out or I live with Drew marriage. No, you just can work at it and get it better. Uh, for those of you who are not yet married and think, yeah, I would like to get married. That would be my ambition. Well, pray that God will provide you with a godly spouse. Choose wisely. Commit. Choose someone who will forgive you because you'll need it. And you can forgive. The, dig the dignity of marriage should be honoured, says Jesus. But alongside that, and uh, unusually, and it's a, I think it's a distinctive mark of the Christian faith, the dignity of the sig excuse me, single life should be honoured too. Verses 10 to 12. Verse 10. The disciples said to him, oh golly, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. What? I get married, and that's it? I mean, what if it doesn't work out? Uh, maybe it's better off to be single. I mean, the life of a fisherman, it's not bad, you know? You get up early, I know that, but you lie in the sun all day, you catch some fish, you eat some, you, ch you, know, you have another... It's all right. It's all right, the fisherman. Um, I don't need those hassles. Uh, Jesus says, oh, no, no, you've got that wrong. Marriage must be honoured. But let me just address you there. Verse 11, not everyone can accept this word. I think here, the word that it's better not to marry. He's addressing their comment. But only to those whom it's been given. It's not for everyone's singleness. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who were born that way. That's just how they exit the womb. Their sexual organs are not functioning. Or their chromosomes are a bit mixed up. They can't um, act sexually. There are eunuchs who um, have been made that way by others. Well, in the ancient world, you want someone to protect your queen? Let's make sure she's safe. Um, or, you know, there was that sort of thing. Or maybe a prisoner of war um, could be that. But then there's the third category. 
There are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. While some choose it for my sake, for the honor of the kingdom. And Jesus commends that. He commends and honors marriage. He commends and honors singleness. Now, in Christian history, the church has ebbed and flowed on it. Oh, celibacy, that's the way forward, really, for, uh, you know, early church was pretty good. Then, uh, then you get the medieval church, oh, celibacy, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's real Christianity. Uh, Reformation says, no, you fools, you turn them into freaks and nutters. Um, don't do that. Everyone must marry. Everyone, everyone. And, and so the pendulum sort of swings, and it swings a bit too hard. It swings a bit. This is the same in wider culture, of course. At times, marriage is held up as the sort of pinnacle of what you to be mature, and other times to be single is that, you know, these the pendulum swings back and forth. Jesus honors marriage, and he honors singleness. It's both. Is it right? Possibly in the last 30 years or so, or I don't know, 40 years, possibly the church has honored marriage too much at the expense of singleness. I'm always wary of those broad brush statements. I mean, who can tell? I'm sure different churches have different priorities and different things get traced. I don't know. But we need to be careful of that. A very helpful book uh, written by Sam Albury, The Seven Myths or Seven Myths About Singleness. He tells the story of bumping into a friend. Uh, or, or meeting up with a friend, and uh, they'd been in the same church 10 years prior, and really could been good friends, uh, but uh, they hadn't really seen one another for a decade. But back then, uh, her kids had been uh, teenagers, so, uh, hey, you know, chat and catch up, and it's great, and, uh, and how are you, and what are you doing, and where are you living, and, uh, and how are your kids? It's a natural question to ask. Oh, and he, her reply was, well, one of them is married, and the other is engaged, so they're both sorted. He said, oh, so does that mean I'm unsorted as a single guy, same-sex attracted, living a celibate life? Am I unsorted? Of course, great awkwardness and, you know, she wasn't, she's a, you know, she's a friend. I wasn't trying to cause offense. Just clumsily, unwittingly, revealed her sub-biblical view on such things. You need to be a bit careful on that. Two questions. Uh, two questions on this. One, if marriage points towards Christ and his church, what does singleness point to? Well, those who are single and living biblically faithfully, living a chaste single life, you are saying, I think marriage is a sacred thing. I think marriage is a really important picture between Christ and his church. And I won't cheapen it. And I won't devalue it. And I won't spread my favors wi widely. Because that would be mocking this picture of faithfulness that Christ has for his church. I think singleness possibly also says... In sum, marriage now is not ultimate. Human marriage now is just pointing to the marriage of Christ and his bride. A marriage now for however long, 40, 50, 60 years, if you're blessed with long lives, it's just a pointer. Again, Sam Albury puts it this way, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, 
Singleness shows us its sufficiency. I don't need that now because it's coming greater. Another question. If sex is only for within a marriage between a man and a woman, what is our sexuality for? Why is it that for, I don't know, 12 years, I couldn't give a hoot about such things, and then puberty comes, and woo, all of a sudden, oh, there's a hormonal woohoo, uh, whichever way we direct it, male, female, whatever. Uh, why? Why does God do that? Why doesn't he sort of say, oh, you're married? Ka-ching, now that turn, let's turn that button on now. Why are all of us, no matter what age, stage, we've all got a sexual drive, a sexuality. Some of us may at some point be able to act upon that in marriage. Not all. There are sexless marriages. Some will not because they're single. Some will not because they're same-sex attracted and therefore will remain celibate. But we all have it. We all have a sexuality, and it's a powerful set of emotions. Why? Well, when the scriptures want to demonstrate the enormity of God's passion for his people and the intensity of his love for his people, the scriptures have no embarrassment in reaching for the full range of erotic sexual language to say God loves you like that Ezekiel 16 the book of Hosea the book of Song of Songs God loves you like that the purpose of marriage is to display Christ's love for his church the essence is union of a male and a female the dignity should be honoured the dignity of singleness should be honoured God has given us these drives, these emotions, so we don't think of him in bland terms. Hear me rightly. God is not merely a sovereign king who demands that we follow him. He is that. But he's also the bridegroom who says, I want to woo you with my love. I want to so overwhelm you with who I am that you go, I want you. Jesus is not merely a saviour doing his job because he has to. A bit like a fireman. Don't worry, mom, it's what I do. I save humans, that's what I do. He's not merely a dutiful saviour. He is biblically the bridegroom who loves his people. Like a groom on a wedding day who waits for the bride to come from the back and looks over his shoulder with a massive grin. Because that's Revelation 21. The bridegroom waits for us. So marriage is the shape of gospel commitment and faithfulness. Sexuality is a demonstration of gospel intensity. God's passion for us. And God has placed it within all of us to give us some hint of his love for people like you and me. The purpose of marriage is to display Christ's love for his people. Let me do this in prayer.
great God and Father, this evening, again, we, we've touched upon sensitive issues, fragile issues for some of us, delicate truths that really strike at the heart of who we are and, and how we feel. Again, forgive me if I've been careless, clumsy in the way I've expressed anything here. But Father, for all of us, please give us the hearts to submit our experiences to the truths of Scripture. And above all, we pray, would we all grow in seeing our desires and longings and yearnings and these sexual ones as given to us as a good gift so we understand a little bit more of your passion for us. Help us understand these things that way, Father, as you design them to be. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.